0: You know, as we move forward to recovery, I think that community colleges, apprenticeships, and online learning, all of the, those three are going to play a huge role as we get Americans back on their feet and back to work as the jobs come back online, hopefully,
1: in the, the coming year. This is In the Know with ACCT, the voice of community college leaders. I'm Jacob Bray. On this episode of In the Know, ACCT's Director of Strategic Communications, David Connor, continues his conversation with Andrew Hansen, Director of Research for Strata Education Network's Consumer Insights team. David and Andrew discuss education consumer insights and what they mean for higher education and workforce training. This episode picks up with discussion of the future of credentials. This is part two of a two-part episode. This interview was recorded via Zoom, so please excuse any dips or breaks in audio quality.
2: A couple of years ago, maybe three years ago, we interviewed somebody from the current administration who said his dream was that um, one day nobody will have college degrees and nobody will stop going to college throughout their careers. And I mean, that would be a remarkable paradigm shift. Um, But I I think that... Precisely.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right, because, you know, if we are in a world where everybody's learning over the course of their lives, formally and informally, and technology has allowed us to learn more efficiently, uh, to learn more independently, you know, to learn virtually, and so on and so forth, people are going to come in with a lot of different, like, you know, if if all education was degree-based, then people will have a complex mix of different credentials. And it's, it's very, very difficult for employers to make sense of what that means. Mm -hmm. Uh, So in the end, they don't want degrees, employers, they want skills. And in fact, we've seen from our, um, from our surveys of uh, hiring managers and employers, we said, you know, what, when you're making hiring decisions, what do you care about? And they, they care a lot more about work experience. They see that as a stronger validated of some validation of somebody's skills than a credential and skills. So that doesn't mean that there's you know, not room for learning. In fact, there's more room for, for learning. It's just in this world where we've got hundreds of thousands of different kinds of credentials, many of which come from the education world, an increasing number come from industry, when employers can't make sense of that or process that to derive meaning from it, then those those credentials are less likely to make you stand out uh, as an individual.
2: Yeah, so uh, this, this is just something that just came to mind, but I wonder, um, you know, community colleges have all, always done this kind of training um, for people who are already employed but need to brush up on a skill or learn a new skill or what have you, Mm. um, or be certified for a profession. And I wonder, I've seen, you know, just on social media accounts, for example, I see that many, 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 I would say all actually of the super selective elite universities are now marketing skills-based certificate programs. Um, And I wonder, how you think that folds in with the overall higher ed landscape with people seeking additional education of that nature. And do you think that community colleges can compete with with that sort of thing? Or do you think they should be investing in a different sort of uh, non-degree educational program?
0: I think community colleges can compete. They tend to be tend to be the sort of low cost uh, providers of any of this. So you can go to, in my case, Georgetown, you know, it's sort of several thousand dollars for an individual course, let's say, uh, community college can offer a low cost alternative, which is going to capture part of the market. I think that the way um, this has worked uh, in the past is, is you sort of have leading providers who experiment and test out a new idea, non-traditional providers that is, and then um, traditional institutions tend to lag that development. They wait on the sidelines and see what, what, what works, what has value, and then they adopt that themselves and try to capture part of that market. And so I think in both the case of the, the traditional four years and who are doing continuing professional education and professional development, as well as community colleges, there's plenty of space for them to, to jump in those markets because we're talking about a workforce that's 160 million uh, people. And, you know, incre- the value of learning is continuing to increase. Our workforce is becoming more flexible. People are making more transitions between different career fields throughout their lives, either by necessity or by choice. Um, and so I think, you know, especially as we figure out um, models that allow us to do this at a lower cost. Um, you know, many of the cases, those are virtual as the market gets more competitive and more in, innovative. Um, I think it's, you know, we're going to continue to make progress on that front front, but I don't think the market is, uh, you know, has by any means reached saturation. I think there's plenty of room for growth for providers of all sorts. Mm-hmm.
2: So a a really, really interesting um, part of your survey is the revelation. I mean, it's remarkable looking at the the numbers, but um, confidence in the value of education has fallen by more than half among adult students just in the past year. Um, (laughs) What what do you think is behind that? Do you think this is a temporary thing having to do with what's been going on or um, has it been long coming?
0: I don't think it's been long coming. I think it is, I think a decline in confidence in the value proposition of higher education has to a certain extent taken place over the past decade. And I think it's tied in with first the great recession for the first time you saw college graduates, recent college graduates, even if they had bachelor's degrees struggling to find jobs. Uh, those were, uh, uh, covered in great detail by the media for years, student debt crisis, underemployment, all of these things uh, leading Americans to begin to question the value of you know, an individual education. At the same time, the price of education is high and out of reach for many people. And so the, that was sort of all driving the pre-pandemic attitudes towards the value of education, now this next crisis hit and this particular, for that particular finding that you alluded to, these are aspiring adults, so people without college degrees who are 25 to 44 years old. And so I think this is a, a generation, a millennial generation for the most part, who has been hit by a number of crises, uh, you know, fairly early in their careers and, it is causing them to, I think, lose faith in institutions of all, all types. Education is one of those um, institutions, but there's a, I think a feeling of, you know, much of this is outside of my control. They're not feeling as empowered uh, to believe that, uh, that if they make this right set of choices, that it's going to lead to uh, positive outcomes. Um, And so I think, there's, there's an attitude that they, they may be left behind, you know, sort of a lost generation kind of uh, attitude, but as you know, the, some of the jobs and skills that were once valuable become, you know, automated. And um, I think there's some of that going on, but it all speaks to um, some of the challenges that we were discussing earlier, the self-doubt about the ability to succeed in a classroom environment Uh, a perception that the system isn't fair to people who look like me or from my background, especially for young people of color. Um, And, uh, you know, I think it's, it's a lot of complex factors that come to play, but it's, it's one of the central challenges that I think we face as we look to extend opportunity through education to this uh, population of, of people without, with less education, either a high school education or, or some college that a lot of times the barriers, yes, there's financial barriers. Yes. There's, you know, uh, constraints to their time and other responsibilities, but a lot of the challenges are based on their mindsets, uh, based on their beliefs in them, in themselves and, and their, uh, you know, and their confidence that, that they're going to receive a positive outcome from, from education. And so I think the solution there is a lot of things. I mean, it's storytelling, uh, it's, it's uplifting uh, and highlighting the stories of people from those backgrounds who have succeeded, putting those front and center and there's a number of avenues to do, do that. It's so marketing is one channel through which you can do that. But I think our general kind of conversations away from the sky is falling, uh, which is a lot of the coverage of, of higher education in, in America toward one uh, that is based on success and, and opportunities.
2: Yeah, I think, um, <clears throat> so this is, this is leading to a question, but speaking of storytelling, very quick little story. Somebody I know who is a adult mother of two, um, decided in, and had not had an opportunity because of her background, um, which was really not an, an easy upbringing, um, decided to go to pursue her degrees, uh, first associate degree, then bachelor's degree. And of course, you know, I was one of many people um, encouraging her to go to a community college first for a lot of reasons. And she ended up going to an online, um, another type of online university. And the reasons I learned, I mean, they were multifaceted, speaking to a lot of the different factors that you were talking about. One of them, of course, was convenience. Because um, being a mother who works full time, she didn't feel like she had, time to go to a campus um, and, you know, make that commute uh, so frequently, but then also there there was a lot, it was a confidence issue um, because there was high level customer service. Um, She was told she wouldn't have to test in, which was intimidating. And so that brings up a lot of questions of model, I think, um, and delivery. And one of of the things that your survey um, revealed was that three in 10 Americans at this point would prefer an online only option for any type of higher education, even if COVID-19 were not a threat. Mm -hmm. And then another third would prefer hybrid and and then 41% would prefer um, in-person only courses. So that's a lot of diversity. Um, And I wonder, and I'm thinking in part because trustees deal with their college's budgets. um, To what extent do you think higher ed should accommodate these preferences, um, and specifically community colleges? Uh, You know, there's expense related to it. There's changing things. But now, you know, it seems like this would be the opportune time to, to really look into doing that.
0: I think so, and you know every institution is different, so it's hard to provide generic feedback. I think a very certain certain programs are much easier to facilitate online than than others, uh, right? Uh, but I I do think that um, you know we're engaged in this sort of massive uh, natural experiment with respect to onle- online learning, and you know I think we're going to learn a lot from that. Uh, we probably already have learned a lot. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of hardship that, that's taken place. But to their credit, uh, traditional colleges, universities, community colleges have sort of rapidly, uh, to an extent that I probably didn't think was possible, have adapted to this online learning environments, built new technologies. They're training their, fac- their faculty at a you know, really remarkable pace, um, I do think for those institutions who decide to embrace online learning, we've heard or we've seen, you know, many, many leaders of institutions who really wanted to embrace it before the pandemic, they've now, uh, they've now sort of had Uh, an excuse they've had uh, the ability to do that so um, but I think that so I think there's plenty plenty of room for growth you know you've seen our data even before the pandemic we were seeing really remarkable change in the number of students who were enrolled in some kind of exclusive was exclusively online or a hybrid learning experience and so in the pandemic that's just accelerated accelerated an extreme amount. Um, th- we have investigated through our work, uh, perceptions of the quality of online learning. And we were sort of surprised that there there really aren't that many people who are skeptical. That was sort of, we, we thought it would be much higher. Only about one out of 10 Americans said that they would not be confident in the quality of online learning. There's a lot of uncertainty uh, about the uh, the other the other 90% are evenly split between uh, people who are confident in its quality and then those who are uncertain. Um, but you're, to, you're right. I mean, the the impetus behind your question is correct, that there's really not a one-size-fits-all best mode of learning. Uh, you know, some people really strongly prefer face-to-face. Other people, such as myself, I mean, I, I think people with certain kinds of personality, if you tend to be more introverted, if you tend to prefer independent learning more so, because it's sort of self-paced. In some many cases, that that online environment works really well. Um, and so, I think we are sort of we're creating um, a a more diverse uh, market for that's ultimately going to serve uh, serve learners well. Uh, at the same time, I do think, you know, as we've sort of been building the, building the plane as we're flying, it, that there is this gulf that's materialized between providers of online education who know how to do it really well, and, you know, those who are certainly like learning on the fly, and so that may negatively impact the, perce- the broader perceptions of online learning. So I think that's certainly a concern. Um, but I do think we'll eventually get to a point. And one of the, one of the uh, leaders in the field that we t- we've talked to, Scott Pulsifer, the head of Western Governors University, he likened where we're at with online, online education to basically where online retail was in the 1990s. So there's plenty of room to to learn and understand what works well, but I think in the end, what we'll, we won't even disc, we online learning won't even be a term that we use. There will just be uh, learning, and we'll optimize hybrid learning experiences based on what works best for students.
2: Yeah, um, I you know I was gonna ask you if you, if it's possible that any of um, these opinions, or to what extent I should say, these opinions might be specific to the pandemic era and revert later. Um, but I don't know. <laughs> At this point, I think you're right. I mean, it's just, it's just evolution.
0: Unfortunately, we haven't been tracking. I, well, here, there's a couple things to say. One is, there was the pre-crisis trend Toward online learning, so we've essentially seen, be you know, from I think 2013 to 2018, we saw about two million people who were former students who were formerly in in-person uh, learning experiences move to online and hybrid learning experiences. So uh, something like a 10% uh, shift in in among undergraduate students. I think what we will see is that in looking back upon it. Is that the pandemic accelerated that shift? But once it becomes safe, we'll revert somewhat to the pre crisis uh, trajectory. And so we saw, we did ask the question a number in two different ways. We said, you know, what would your preference for mode be, you know, in the next six months? And then what if COVID 19 were not a factor? And we did see about 15% of Americans say, well, if COVID weren't a factor, I'd prefer in person. But we still saw the majority of people actually said, "Well, I'd I'd prefer online only or hybrid over in person." So I think you're, you know, you the the student that you mentioned. So many of us have those exact experiences or or preferences where the convenience of online uh, just really uh, trumps some of the other concerns. Even if you even if your ideal mode of learning is in person, but you know you don't have two hours in your day to commute across town. Um, and in fact, you know, there's a lot of discussion of the digital divide, for example, which we've sort of investigated to a certain extent. Um, I think we were we were surprised that it wasn't more of a factor. We had four um, percent of the students that we surveyed said it was the most important barrier to learning this fall. But that's you know, you we could say that's surprisingly low. We did have about thirty percent say that it was somewhat of a challenge, uh, but. A barrier that people don't, that's often underappreciated is transportation, especially for low-income folks, is transportation, getting yeah. to and from campus, finding the time uh, for that commute. Uh, and so that's um, possibly to an even greater extent a barrier for many students that the the online option solves for.
2: Yeah, and, um, you know, we've seen, in my opinion, some really heroic, wonderful Um, efforts by a lot of community colleges in the pandemic providing, if they can't, you know, the internet access is, that's maybe a more challenging issue, but colleges and their foundations have been able to provide a lot of technology to students. um, Whereas they wouldn't necessarily be able to provide transportation, you know, for somebody to come and go several days a week. Um, So I, I, I don't know, I just thought that was a really interesting point you made. Um, We we have just a couple minutes left, and I was wondering, um, I'm sure that you're going to continue to monitor these and a lot of other issues. And I wonder, since we're about to start a new year, uh, based on the insights that you've gathered um, from education consumers, would you recommend uh, community college leaders focus on what in the coming year?
0: Well, we had, I think... um the marketing practices to tell the stories of the the very folks that we're talking about who have uh, challenges with respect to self-doubt, their their belief in the ability that this is actually going to help them achieve their goal to transition to that next step. There's, you know, reaching these students is a huge challenge, number one. Um, We have uh, in our previous work, uh, you know, how do we increase the value the perceptions of value for students who are going through programs. And so in partnership with Gallup, there were six experiences that were associated which um, with a much higher uh, perception of the quality and value of their learning. And so it was, it was teachers who cared about them and made them excited about learning, mentors who were there to encourage them, pro- a long, some sort of long-term project-based learning experience, an opportunity to learn in a work-based setting and apply the skills that you're developing, and then involvement in the community through extracurriculars or some other, some other options. So I think those are the things that we've previously found can really increase uh, the perception of value among students so that they're willing to uh, uh, then share their experience Uh, positively with others and and encourage them to go. Um, I think the other thing that we've uh, sort of investigated our network as a solution are uh, intermediaries, the role for intermediaries as we go forward for building the connective tissue between education and work, because in many cases, it's just really difficult for institutions to do everything themselves. Um, And so, Uh, We just released a new report called Bridge Builders um, about uh, leading intermediaries, not just in the U.S., but all over the globe who are finding ways to promote equity, to um, uh, promote high-quality navigation, advising, finding a common language between education and work, and, and understanding understanding what skills and, and jobs are in demand in the labor market, just to to name a few. Um, but I do think in, you know, as we move forward to recovery, I think that community colleges, um, apprenticeships, and online learning, all of the, those three are going to play a huge role in, you know, as we get Americans back on their feet, back to work, um, is the jobs come back online hopefully in the, the coming years uh, that we need to develop just-in-time learning programs that get people to, to the skills that they need to you know reskill and make that transition because we've learned from previous recessions that the jobs that come back aren't going to be the same same jobs that existed before and so we'll need to, ha- to help people develop the skills they need to to transition. Uh, to that, to that next step in their in their work and career.
1: Thank you for listening to part two of our conversation with Andrew. If you're interested in learning more about his work, we'll put a link in the description for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.